0: Welcome uh, to this new series called God and Country. If you're sixth grade and below, you didn't, get, you didn't figure out when to head downstairs, now's a good time uh, to, to go across or downstairs, whichever you may be. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, <clears throat> as, we, uh, as we jump in this new series. <clears throat> a couple of years ago. Well, let me set this up by saying, every year, I gather with a group of pastors toward the end of September, 1st of October sometime, and we pray together, share together, laugh together, hike together, um, live life together. We've been doing this for almost 20 years, and generally, we go to Colorado, and, you know, because you're closer to God there, uh, altitude-wise, I guess, I don't know, but We love getting into the mountains somewhere, just getting away, pulling away, and generally our tradition has been my brother and I, he's one of the pastors I meet, my brother and I stay over an extra night. We love baseball, so we go to Denver, go to a Colorado Rockies game, and we try to schedule it uh, like at the end of the season. I know everything's messed up this year. We're not even sure where we're headed this year. We've got a week, but not a place. Uh, So uh, my pastor friends, we're not sure we're going. But anyway, we go to the Colorado Rockies game and it's usually the last homestand of the season. And on that Friday night, they have what's called fan appreciation night. And it's a fun time. It doesn't matter how bad or good the Rockies have been all year. They do this big fireworks display. And here's here's uh, from a couple of years ago. Here is uh, part of the part of the show. (laughs) They don't necessarily translate all that great on the um, uh, phone being videotaped. And you couldn't even hear the music in the background, which was Stars and Stripes Forever. uh, was being played pretty loudly in the background and, and inevitably in these fireworks displays, which, uh, you know, again, this is the end of September. This is not July the 4th. It's the end of September, but all the songs, because I guess it's a necessity that all songs be patriotic if you do fireworks displays. Uh, So all the songs were patriotic, and inevitably they did. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. I won't forget the ones who died who gave the right to me, and I'll gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. You know that Lee Greenwood song gets played at these uh, events all the time. And uh, I want to make it clear as I go into this series that I love the USA. I love our country. And though there's probably little cause for uh, them to call a 61-year-old man to come and defend her still today, I still would. Um, They're probably not going to, you know, give me a yell, but that would be me. I still get misty. I start crying during gold medal displays when the Star-Spangled Banner is being played in the background. Um, I still get choked up uh, at patriotic events. And um, so leading into this, I want to let you know, I I love our country. I pray for our country. Uh, I I believe God has placed us all in this country for such a time as this. And at the same time, I want it's my desire as a pastor to say, how does God desire for us as a country to respond? But more importantly, how does God expect us as a church to act? And how is this tension between God and country to be maintained in a way that is healthy, that we don't dismiss our country nor do we worship like an idol our country and I think my goal again as a pastor is to get us to continually come back to what does God's Word say and how should we respond because there is this mixture within our country and especially within the church of Christian nationalism. It's a blending of almost Christianity and the worship of our country. And over the next four weeks, I really want to look at this four to five, maybe six, depending on how much you'll still love me at the end of this, um, to look at this topic so that we as the church can be in a healthy way examining what are our views personally and corporately. In 1620, a Puritan pastor by the name of John Winthrop stood up in a church in England and preached a sermon. Uh, He he was going to be part of a group who was about to sail for a new country, except there wasn't a country. It was just a new land uh, that the Puritans were going to go and inhabit. And in this sermon, he talked about how the Puritans, the group that he was preaching to, if we stay connected with each other but more importantly stay connected with god then we can be and he used the term a city set on a hill a light to the nations now that sermon sat dormant for about 200 years it wasn't published again until sometime around 1838 it didn't create a story it was just it got it got discovered in a group of documents Um, in the early 1800s, as Massachusetts was celebrating its historic roots. Not really used very often until post-World War II. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, referenced it and talked about how America is to be this city set on a hill. Ronald Reagan then pulled the same reference out and talked about America as a city set on a hill. And almost every president, including Barack Obama, and recently, uh, Donald Trump have pulled out that reference of America's being a city set on a hill. Now, I, I I know that the the political jargon that they're going for is that America is a is to be a beacon of freedom to the world. But as you and I will recognize, that reference comes directly from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says that his followers are to be a city on a hill, a light. Can't be put under a bushel. And what happens in our minds if we're not careful is we start, because it just happens over time, we start to connect America and the church. As if a reference to the followers of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ is a reference to somehow the United States of America. Do you you understand what I'm saying? we get it blended and we can't take it apart. We get it so blended that almost to the point, if I were to say something about the United States of America, for some people, it's as if I'm preaching against God himself. And so, I want to clearly state, again, I love the nation I'm part of, but more importantly, I love the Church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is approached by the religious leaders of his day, and they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trap him because he's living in a nation that's occupied by a foreign country, oppressively occupied by the nation of Rome. And so they approach him, and they ask that trick question of him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, all the Jews hated paying taxes. As a matter of fact, all Americans hate paying taxes. Everybody hates paying taxes. But especially the oppressed, when your nation is having to pay taxes to a foreign occupying country. So they know if he says, yes, you, have, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he, they know that the people, his followers, are going to turn against him because they so hate Rome. But if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he, they can go to the civil authorities and say, hey, this guy's out preaching against Caesar, saying, don't pay your taxes. So either way he goes, he's going to get into trouble. And you know the reference well, uh, and here's what is given to us in Matthew. Then the Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap in, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, You know, we know you are a man of integrity. Don't you lay the, let's butter him up right off the bat. You're a man of truth in that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. I mean, what? I mean, they're just laying it on thick, aren't they? Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus goes on. And says to them Jesus knowing their evil intent said you hypocrites why are you trying to trap me show me the coin used for paying the tax they brought him a denarius and he asked them whose portrait is this and whose inscription Jesus was brilliant at to me asking qualifying questions Uh, we could talk about this all day that um, sometimes the best response is another question Especially one in which you're trying to get the person to define their intent. But without that. And they say, Caesar's. And he says to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The response is brilliant, not just because he saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But in their that line he is saying, give to God what is God's. And because he's speaking to the religious leaders, he knows that they know that they shall have no other gods before him. They're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. They're to worship the God of their fathers and to worship him alone. In other words, I think in this, Jesus is not only saying give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's, but he's laying the groundwork in a very subtle way of saying all superiority belongs to God. It is God and then Caesar in that order. It is God and country in that order. And our problem today many times is when we get the order mixed up or if we even see them equally. And so today I just want to give you as we launch into this what I hope will be a fun uh, and informative um, series of sermons, some direction on how do we approach the coming days. Uh, I preached a lot of this sermon series four years ago, and it's been asked by several people for me to redo it. It's been asked by several people for me never to redo it, and some for me to redo it. So I'm going to go with, uh, let's redo it. Uh, Because I think it's a reminder that we all need at times about how to maintain proper balance and order in relationship to our nation and to each other. So I'm going to lay the groundwork this morning and then we're going to launch out in the weeks ahead to look at some uh, even more challenging truths. But if we don't agree on these five points that I'm going to give us right now that I believe can be derived from the scripture, then we're going to have trouble. We're going to struggle. We're going to struggle in the days ahead. So here are the points. Remember where your first allegiance lies. Remember where your first—you know—the uh, there there is a uh, Elton Trueblood did a um, great book on the Ten Commandments, and he says that the difference between one and two is the greatest difference numerically you can possibly imagine. That the difference between one and two is much greater than the difference between two and a million. And you say, well, that seems like a lot of... He says when you go from singular to plural, that everything changes. He, his illustration that he uses is that when you go from married to one woman to married to two women, you have moved from a monogamist to polygamist. And that that's a big difference. So from there on out, in his book, it doesn't matter if you're married to two or ten people, you've moved from given your full and wholehearted devotion to the one. The Bible is clear that we are to be first and foremost followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but we are citizens of what? Heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. The Bible makes it clear over and over again that it doesn't matter if you're a citizen of Rome, of the United States, of America, of Albania, of Greece, China. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your first allegiance lies to him. How many of you come from Baptist backgrounds? How many of you went to vacation Bible school? How many of you remember the assembly at vacation Bible school? So In the assembly at Vacation Bible School, and I'm not against anything I'm talking about as far as Vacation Bible School, I'm just talking to you about how this blending kind of gets into us and we don't even see it. This is Vacation, what? Bible, Bible, thank you, Bible School. So you walk into this assembly and one of the big honors at VBS when I was uh, little was being one of the people chosen to do what? Carry the flags and the Bible. You had the two flags coming in and you had the Bible. And then right from the start, the first thing you did was you pledged allegiance to what? The flag of the United States of America first. Then to the Christian flag and then thirdly the Bible. That was the order that we did things. Now, again, I am not preaching against the idea of creating great citizens. What I am preaching, not against, but encouraging us to look at is, are we subtly instilling in our children that at Bible school, the pledge to the flag gets blended in? Do you understand my thought? And we do it first, before the Christian flag or the Bible, making it in our heads a priority we need to remember all the time where our first allegiance lies I'm just getting warmed up so if you think wow that's a little offensive just hang on and um, we've got further to go even today than than even in in the days ahead and again I'm not trying to offend I'm trying to get us to the place where we say you know what? We're battling over who's president. And I want to tell you this. On November 5th, God will still be God. Amen. The throne room of heaven will still be occupied. There is, we don't have to go into this all like going crazy worked up. But you will if your first allegiance lies here. You'll think it all matters here. And I'm saying, good people, we need to be good citizens. We need to exercise who we are as citizens of the United States, but more importantly, we are citizens of heaven. And our first allegiance, and there can only be one first allegiance, lies to God and God alone. Second is this, resist allowing national pride to overcome Christian wisdom. There should be wisdom after that. I, I messed up. The This is my problem <clears throat> somehow. Um, I don't know how, but I'm sure I made a mistake somehow. It's hard to do for me, but I did. Um, Thanks for going with me. Ephesians, should be the word wisdom there. It says in Ephesians 5, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as what? Wise. Wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. There are so many passages in the New Testament that contrast the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. I I am of the ilk to say any time we believe that national pride will give us wisdom, then we're messing things up. That really is the church instilled and empowered with the spirit of truth That we have the opportunity to walk in God's wisdom. National pride will get us um, prideful, which God doesn't look well on. As a matter of fact, he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. We need to walk in Christian wisdom. It says in James 3.17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I'm giving you that passage just to say those are not the characteristics of national pride. Considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Those are not what I would see the fruit of national pride being. As a matter of fact, I see the fruit of national pride being a whole opposite spectrum of fruit. End of World War I, the Germans um, at the Treaty of Versailles basically had to give away the whole country. They had to give away everything. And German national pride had been a hallmark of who they were. But that pride was really in every way taken from them politically socially and especially economically into the void of what was created by the treaty of versailles and there was a void that western countries didn't foresee in their destruction of germany they created a hole in which a monster could step into some we look back and say how in the world did hitler become over this country. He did it because he stepped into a void, and he stepped into a void especially that entailed national pride. They were robbed of their identity and their economics, and he was able to say the opposite to that. I'm going to follow me, and I'll make you great. I'm carefully choosing my words here. Uh, I will make you great. You're going to be prideful of who we are economically, socially, socially. Politically, worldwide, you'll be prideful. Now, unfortunately, within the context of Germany at the time, and these these are my thoughts about political history, and they could be inaccurate, so give me some grace, but the church was blended into the governmental system. The church in Germany, and they were a deeply religious people, so you're looking at this saying, okay, how does a deeply religious people, the German Lutherans, not see the monster that was being created? It was because they had lost their identity. And national pride got blended with their version of Christianity. And in some ways, and I know this in hindsight, we see this as an impossibility but they saw Hitler almost as a messianic character and in their churches and these are both pictures of churches in Germany in the 30s in their churches they began to display the German Nazi symbol both in front of the church and you can't see in the black and white but it's behind the altar it's over the Lord's table it's Displayed prominently in their churches now there were people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood up and said this is horrible That split from the German church and and became the confessing church now we in hindsight look at that and we're like horrified at how could the church allow this blending of nationalism and Christianity to so subvert the message of the gospel. And I, I would say, and I, I could have shown you like three, four, five videos. I'm going to, have to save some of them for the punchline for the days ahead. But here's just one picture I pulled recently uh, in which the American flag is being displayed over the cross. Now, I'm not sure, and I don't want to, to say, okay, this is Nazism. I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say is that it is easy for nationalism to get blended into Christianity. And if we're not careful, we see this, this blending of the two and we lose our Christian spirit-led wisdom. A wisdom that comes from, from on high. So I, my second point is this. Look, resist allowing national pride to overcome Christian wisdom, godly wisdom. We need godly wisdom. The fourth point, third point I think I'm on now, you don't have notes any, some of you are taking notes, but we don't give them because of this whole pandemic thing. Uh, Recognize the primacy of the word of God. Recognize the primacy of God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in... Righteousness. We need to understand and read God's Word. I've said this over and over again, but you may have picked it up in just these two points that Fullness Christian Fellowship is is a church fully dedicated to fully embracing the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Knowing God's Word, which is truth knowing the spirit of truth who leads and guides us into all truth. And we need the Word of God because if we get away from the Word of God, then we're going to start depending on other documents. I I believe the Constitution of the United States is a brilliant document, but it is not the Word of God. It doesn't hold the same category. It is not the same. It's a great document. It, It aligns our country, but, you know, even... Scholars believe that it is a living, breathing document changing over time. But we hold to the word of God and God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a different view of a document. And it may lead us to a point, and I believe in obeying the laws of the land. We're going to talk about that as we go along. But at some point, it may be that we're called upon to obey God rather than men. And in doing so, we need to recognize that there is a primacy that we stand upon, which is God's word. Now, having said that, I feel like I keep having to give these caveats. There are people who have used the word of God inappropriately to lead us down roads and to believe things and to hold on to things that are not really godly. Usually they're economic. I'm going to use the word of God to justify my economic position so that I can subvert other people, keep them down, and I can make money. And again, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about. But I, I want us in all of this, hopefully, I'm trying to lay this foundation of biblical truths about who we are in him. So we need to recognize that the word of God stands firm. There's a prime, we need to know the word of God. Part of our problem is too that we live in a culture more and more that believes there is no absolute truth. We believe that truth is whatever you want it to be. As my 8th grade algebra teacher told me, you're a perfect whatever you are. Sounded good. Oh, I'm a perfect. No, I'm not. I'm a sinner saved by grace. That it's a whole different that Buddhist mindset of you're a perfect whatever you are versus the word of God that says, I, I need a savior, stand in contrast to one another. And it's only when the word of God gets permeated into my spirit and into my being that I realize where I, where I stand. We need to know the word of God. We need to teach it to our children. That's what Miss Kathy's doing right now with your kids who are over there. I guarantee you what they're hearing is the word of God. Um, they're not doing puppets, not playing games. They may be, but they're doing it in a way. They're doing it in a way. They probably are. But they're do- that's not the goal. The goal is to use that tool to teach them the word of God. <clears throat> I don't know what they're doing today. Hopefully, no telling. Here's the next point. Resolve to pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Oh, sorry. Thanks, TV. Resolve to pray for your leaders. There's the point. Pray for them. Paul says in 1 Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Okay, we're supposed to pray for everyone. But then he specifies for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What was Paul's goal? What was Paul's goal? Economic security? No, he, his goal was an environment where the gospel could be proclaimed. So therefore, I'm going to pray for my leaders. But, you know, we, we have not even no idea what the political oppressive system that was Rome, that Paul lived under. I mean, nowhere do you see Paul say, you know... We need to pray for the swamp of Rome to be drained and the jerks in leadership to be thrown out. Instead, what we need is to pray that God would place the right person in so that we can live godly lives so that the gospel could be proclaimed. Now, I, I know the differences between a, 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 a king and you know, a society where you don't vote and a republic or democratic society like ours. That we have a personal responsibility to help choose and make. But at the same time, I believe that it doesn't matter who gets elected coming up. We still pray for them. We pray for them. We pray for our leaders. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself. To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment to themselves. Now, I see this tension that you and I both have probably recognized between the last point and this point, which is hey, there's times where I must obey God rather than men don't rebel against the governing authority. So which is it? Do I obey God or not rebel? And I believe that there are laws that can be resisted without rebelling against the government. Now, you say, well, that's a fine line. and Yeah, and you need wisdom. But if you do resist the laws of the land, you will be under the judgment of that land whether you're acting godly or not godly. Are you with me? Yes. So the, guy, the early Christians... When they're ordered not to preach or not to convene or not to meet, they they tried to do it in different ways, but they still suffered persecution from the land. And the command to them was still pray for the governing authorities over you. Pray for them. No matter what else happens in the days ahead, I think this is a truth we can hang on to, which is to resolve to pray for our leaders. In the last election, Max Lucado wrote a long blog um, prior to the election, but he closed it by saying something like this. He said, Understanding God's sovereignty over the nations opens the door to peace. When we realize that God influences the hearts of all rulers, we can then choose to pray for them rather than fret about them. Are you reading this, people? Rather than wring our hands, we bend our knees we select prayer over despair. Prayer is our weapon. Prayer is what God has called us to do. Prayer is who we are as a people. I've, I, I've been, <clears throat> we were talking about this the other night, Chris and I and the elders, but I've been really amazed at the lack of calls to prayer for the coming election. Or maybe I'm not hearing it. Maybe it's not ringing across the land like, instead I hear a lot of politicizing and a lot of words going out, but I don't hear a lot of prayers being offered up. And I want to call us at fullness to be a people of prayer. You might say, well, what can this little church in Birmingham, listen, two or three are gathered in my name and I'm in the midst of them. A big difference. We don't know what difference it will make, but it it is our call to be a praying people. Resolve to pray for our leaders. And finally, this is a big one, respect those who differ from you. Respect those who differ from you. We started fullness in 1993. Um, I would say... As far as I know, for the first 15 years of the life of our church, we didn't have a Democrat attend. I'm just kidding. I don't know if we did or not. But I would say, some of you are like, oh, yeah, that should be the way it is. But, for, you know, honestly, I, I don't really remember. We were pretty the same from a political standpoint in the 90s and early 2000s. It was a, it was a time of conservatism. Um, just. But over the last decade... I, There's been a variety, which I think is healthy, honestly, a variety of different viewpoints come in, which make up the body of Christ. If we all saw the same thing and looked at it the same way, then I don't think the body is being the body. That's that's my view. So I embrace differences. But at the same time, there are those who can't respect those who differ from them politically. As a matter of fact, they'll just get downright mad about it. I mean, if, I were to, if we were to go around the room and talk about who you're voting for in this election, you're going to vote for Trump, you're going to vote for Biden, there would be people who would be, like, appalled that other people in this room were voting differently than them. Which shows there's a lack of respect for one another, a lack of love for one another. My mom passed away in 2011. Um... My mom is, was, um, really, I I say this like probably most of us would talk about our moms, she was the godliest woman I really ever knew. My mom graduated from high school, she went to a two-year college uh, to be a dental hygienist, she got married, she had kids, Um, she was also one of the smartest women I knew. Uh, Even though she didn't finish college, she dedicated her life to raising a family, being a pastor's wife. I've told the story before about how it didn't matter what book I was reading in my house, my mom would say, what book are you reading? And I was a pretty voracious reader. And my mom would get the exact same book so she could read it with at the same time so she could talk to me about the book that I was reading. It, it, it not only gave us something to converse about because I, I'm not really a conversationalist. But if you get me telling stories and talking about story and talking about a book I'm reading or something, then it's hard to shut me up. So yeah, it's true. I know that's a, it's amazing, but it, it, yeah, I could tell a story. And if I think a story was good one time, I think it's good the hundredth time, which drives my wife crazy at the same time. But anyway, so she would read the books I would read in order to, to talk with me about it. And she was also probably one of the most conservative people I knew. I mean, politically, socially, um, you know, she was just a woman of her time, born in the 30s and raised in South Georgia. And um, she, she came from a very conservative, very, you know, rural Georgia in the 30s and 40s, you can imagine. So my mom, the last election she voted in was 2008. And I remember calling my mom and dad and we were talking about the election. I said, hey, who did you vote for? And my mom, the most godly conservative woman I've ever met in my life, said, I voted for Barack Obama. And I dropped the phone. (laughs) And I said to her, what the heck were you doing voting for a Democrat, Barack Obama? And she goes, I like the man. And I wanted to see a black man elected president of the United States before I died. Now, this was the last election she voted in. Now, my mom and dad, we used to make fun of them because they always canceled out each other's votes. (laughs) They always would go to the... You know, like I remember talking to him like, you know, like my mom would vote. She voted for Kennedy. My dad voted for Nixon. You know, way back in the day, it seemed like over and over again, they would cancel each other's votes. And I would just make fun of them and say, y'all should just stay home. Save your time. But for me, it was like, oh, my Lance, what what are you doing? You know, looking back on it, honestly, I think it was a better choice. Personally, in hindsight, a better choice. You can argue with me about that later if you think about who was running in 2008. All I want to say is this. Respect those who differ from you. You know, it, it wouldn't have been easy. I couldn't do it. I couldn't trash my mom. You know what I mean? I couldn't like, oh, I, I'm done with thee uh, for, for voting for. First of all, again, she was much closer to God than I was. Heard from God better than I do. All of that to say there are people who are different than you. Respect the difference. Respect those who differ. As a matter of fact, love them. Love those who are different than you. Matter of fact, love your enemies. Love those who are really different than you. Do good to those, to them, and lend to them without expecting it to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Oh, people, if we really receive the command of love, it would change how we respond to people. You know, I am, I, I am more than appalled not at those who I would consider enemies, but those who I would consider brothers who act like jerks by holding signs up that said homosexuals are going to burn in hell or whatever sign people hold up condemning other people. Now, does this mean we don't take a stand for righteousness? No, that, again, that's not what I'm saying. Stand for righteousness, stand for justice, stand for um, those who don't have a voice. But I, I think you can do both in love. I think you can make a stand and do it in love, in a way that says, I'm going to minister the grace of God to the world around me. It doesn't do you any good to be pro-life if you're hating the people that you're talking to. That may be a strong statement, but I think you understand what I'm saying. If I'm going to be pro-life and protect the innocent, then I also need to protect and to communicate grace to those who are dying without a savior. I know I've gone way over the line here. First Peter says this, "Live as free men. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honor the king. Respect those who are different than us. And again, going back to the first point, we can do all of it when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then everything else will be added unto us as well. Here are my points again. And I hope if you didn't write them down, just think about them just again for a second. Remember that our first allegiance Goes to whom? Goes to God. Resist allowing national pride to overwhelm or overcome Christian wisdom. Live by the power of the Spirit. Recognize that God's Word is primary in our lives. Resolve to pray for our leaders. When you leave here filled with the Spirit, resolve to pray for those who are in authority over you. And at every point, respect those that differ than you. When we come to the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, communion, however you want to term it, we take this wafer, this piece of bread, and in taking it, we're saying, according to Paul, as he clarifies in Corinthians, that because there is one loaf, which is broken and given to us, we are one body. It's a confession that we are the body of Christ. And though we're different and come from all these different places, we're one because of him. His oneness supersedes our political differences. The gospel is good news because it covers us. And then we take of the, Juice or wine or cup. And we say, somewhere the way I'm thinking is wrong. Somewhere the way I've lived my life, I've stumbled and fallen and I'm sinful, but the blood of Christ covers it. I'm forgiven. I stand holy before Him. And I think in doing so, we also say, God, Let your spirit, let your presence infuse us so that wherever our minds disagree with your mind, change our mind. Wherever the way I live my life differs from the holiness that you've called me, the sanctification, the being set apart as an instrument of righteousness, change the way I live. Any way that I have not demonstrated your grace to a world around me, let your grace and love flow through me to touch the world. You may be saying, that's a lot down here. And that's why I believe when we come to the table of the Lord, this is not some religious deal, like religious exercise that we go through, that there is is life at the table of the Lord. There is healing at the table of the Lord. There is wholeness in our confession of who Jesus is in our life. The worship team is going to come up right now and they're going to play I'm going to, as I pray for us. And then you're going to come and you're going to pick up. I, I hate the social distancing thing because it really is hard to be the body of Christ, but we're, we're trying our best here. So I want you to come up and receive the cup and the bread, take it back to your place, and then as a sign of oneness and whole, wholeness before the Lord, we're going to take it together. But before we come and take it, stand up and let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this moment in time. I thank you, Lord, that it is God and country in that order, and that whenever we come to the table of the Lord, whenever we come to partake of this bread and take of this juice, that, Lord, you're reminding us, and we're remembering your death until your return. We're remembering that we're one because of your broken body. We're remembering that we're forgiven because of your shed blood. We're remembering that uh, our God is the God who rules and reigns. We're remembering that we're recipients of your mercy and your grace. And we're proclaiming to all who will see us that we belong to you. So Lord, as we come and receive, May we confess today your mercy is greater than our sin. Your mercy is greater than even our stupidity. Your mercy is greater than our differences. And may we walk in your grace and your mercy today. In Jesus' name, come to the table of the Lord. Receive it and then take it back to your places.